would be true to your scriptures, that I would uh, point over and over again to you and, and to your salvation, uh, to the grace that you offer us in Christ Jesus. Um, I, I ask that you would help me to help me to remain focused on uh, on uh, the 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 message and on Christ as as I share what uh, what the text has to say today. I pray that you would be with the folks who are here, that they would uh, know you more by hearing the gospel preached, that they would hear from you, that they would, uh, your spirit would till the soil of their hearts uh, and, and pick the rocks of sin out of their fields like, like their lives. Um, and I, I pray that you would plant the gospel seed deep in everybody's lives and, and bring it out to a, a great harvest, Lord. Um, and, and I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, the, uh, the, the, the week that we are looking at this week, excuse me, the message we're doing this week, I don't have a really elaborate or fancy illustration to kind of tie it all together. Uh, we are actually going back to Acts. We've been doing uh, Lent for the last few months, and I uh, am going to admit this will be a uh, difficult sermon for me to do without chasing rabbits the whole time. Uh, this is the week that uh, Paul, like we cover Acts 17, starting in verse 16. What happens here is like, so Paul is in Greece and he's evangelizing in Greece and he's visiting different cities. And this is the week he arrives in Athens. And uh, it is just a terribly fun like section of the book of Acts. We see a cross-section of different groups that he encounters. We see Paul preach a sermon. We see different encounters and interactions. We see the gospel um, sort of in the context of ancient Greek philosophy because like the people who encountered him were the philosophers and they're the ones who start talking to him and they're curious about him. Um, And I assume it's because Paul goes to the marketplace to preach and everybody else had jobs and the philosophers were just hanging around doing nothing. Um, nothing. Like, <laughs> my undergrad is in philosophy. I still read philosophy for fun. I, I am, uh, I'm kind of excited about all this. So, uh, we're gonna do our best as we dive into the text. Um, real quick, I wanna offer a little bit of context. This is Athens, right? This is modern Athens. Uh, there were very few actual cranes. Uh, that have been unearthed by archaeologists. So, like, we know that that's not ancient Athens. Also, the photos are hard to find. Um, but up on the hill, you'll notice, like, the, 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 or the, the walls that are, like, holding in the, the ground because they create a level area up on top. And we have the, the Parthenon and, like, the ruins of different aspects of the city. Um, in the ancient world, uh, uh, Athens was amazing, Right? Um, at this time, it was significantly less amazing than it had been. Um, if you go far enough back, Athens was sort of the center of the intellectual world uh, and the art world. And actually, during the time of Rome, it was still, like the, during the first century, it was still sort of the cultural center of the empire. But at this time, it had declined significantly. Um, it had declined actually to about 5,000 voting members of the city, um, which doesn't seem like that much, or it seems like a lot, but it, it's really just not. It was not a large city. It was not really impressive. Uh, it was not what it had been. It was a, like, sort of shadow of its former self. Um, 
However, it was the cultural center of the world, and so students went there, uh, artists went there, tourists went there, people traveled there to learn and to study and to see, and they had these beautiful temples all over, and so you could go and see these huge buildings and the architecture and the art and the uh, sculptures and everything. I mean, it was amazing, but it was in decline. It was not what it was. Um, now, to give it some perspective, though, like Marcus Aurelius, who was uh, emperor of Rome a little while after this, uh, actually traveled to, as a, as a young man, like once he had been adopted into the emperor's family and placed in the lineage, he traveled to Athens to study Stoicism. And so, like, he was, he was actually trained in Athens. Like, people still went to Athens, but you didn't go there because you had business to do, Right. You didn't go there looking for wealth. You didn't go there looking for an inventor. You didn't go there for those sorts of things. Um, you went to Corinth for that kind of stuff because Corinth had become sort of the center of the empire by that point. Like that part of the empire was a much more important city. But in this sense, like right here um, is Athens. And I'm offering this perspective. It's where philosophy was born. It was where a lot of the great thinkers came about. It was a lot of um, the idea of atoms first appeared. We're going to touch on that really briefly, but like the idea that atoms are a thing was suggested by the Epicurean philosophers, like that everything is made up of tiny little particles, just a blind guess. Um, it was like me in math class as a high school kid. Um, but what we're going to talk about, like their encounter with Paul and their interaction, tells, it, it says a lot about the ancient world. It says a lot about um, the secular world, but it says a lot about our world. And so as we dig into it, I'm going to try not to wander too far off. I'm going to try and stay focused. Um, if I start to rabbit trail, like wave at me. Uh, I've already actually put Jim to sleep, so here we are. Uh, <laughs> this is a bad sign. Um, but, but ultimately what happens there is these are guys, and like it is an attractive point for people who are looking for something more. They're looking for an intellectual thing. They're looking for something novel and exciting to learn. They're looking for the next, like, movement in art. They're looking for the, the, the happening, excited thing. And the trick is that they will never, ever, ever, ever find it. Um, folks were going to Athens and studying and learning, and there was no end to it. It was not a thing you could find. It was a pursuit. And we're going to kind of touch on that as we go, but, like, understand um, this relates to us. This is us. And we'll get to why, but it's, it's fun. It's exciting. Uh, are you all excited? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so here's the main point. If you're going to fall asleep, Jim, uh, again. I'm going to have a quick sip of my soda. <laughs> he is risen. Thank you. By the way, that is the stumbling block for people who are interacting with Paul, but we'll get there in a minute. Um, so the message of the gospel is what the church has to offer the world. This is the main idea. The gospel is what we have. We can go around and we can serve people. And we can um, take care of them. We can build hospitals. We can build homeless shelters. 
We can bring food to people's houses who are hungry. And we are commanded to do that, right? It is a part of who we are, but it is a byproduct of the gospel acting in our lives. And a lot of times we get confused about this, that we have this to offer or that to offer, or that we can start to look like the world or have better music, and that's why Jeremy's here. Um, or we can have, you know, whatever. Like, we can do it as good as the world. We can't. And we have, like, what we have to offer is the gospel. And everything that people find in the church that is of value and eternal consequence grows out of the gospel. Um, our lives should stand out, and our message should, like, it just offers something that the world lacks. But it is that truth. The gospel in us and the gospel that we preach is what we have for the world. And Athens, I think, especially this first little bit, draws this out in an amazing way. So we're going to dive into the text straight away. This is Acts uh, 17, verse 16. This is my, oh, it went. Yay. Um, and, and we're going to work our way through the text, and hopefully I will uh, do so without getting too lost. Uh, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, so Paul uh, and several of his traveling companions uh, have gone their separate ways. They were in Berea. They were preaching there. They go their separate ways. Paul uh, comes to Athens to preach, and like he's waiting for his companions to show up. Uh, and so he, he's there. He's hanging out. He's waiting. And uh, he's waiting for them in Athens. He was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. Now... Understand, like, there, there's a lot in this text that's easy to miss, first off. Um, the marketplace where a lot of the action in this particular story takes place, the, the edges of the marketplace were lined with statues called herms. Really? Herms. It's a weird word. Uh, it sounds like complaining when my wife is uh, unhappy. Herm. Right? Like, uh, but herms were idols that honor the god Hermes. Right. And, and they would line different streets with them. And you had temples everywhere and you had altars everywhere. And remember, a big chunk of what the city does is they attract students. They attract uh, tourists and the like. And so as those people come in, you want to I mean, like like they're coming to see these things. And so like they're out there, they're on display. Uh, I, I sort of think about it like Waldrug. Have you all ever been to Waldrug? I, I recommend that uh, particular pilgrimage. It is ridiculous. Um, it is the most touristy thing in the world. And, and I don't think that Athens was necessarily touristy, but like part of what you knew was going to happen when you got there was there's all this religious stuff happening and there's all this philosophy stuff. There's all these other things. Like there's always something happening in Athens. And so like, like there are idols everywhere. And they worship just about everything. Part of that is because the Greeks worshiped just about everything, right? Um, they just did. But also, sculptors, sculptors would try to make their name. And so they would make these like amazing sculptures, and they would leave them places, and they were awesome, and everybody could see them. Um, but there's a lot of reasons. But there's idols everywhere. Um, and people would, would worship these idols. They would bring offerings to these idols. They were like the idolatry in Athens was no small thing. Now, the phrase greatly distressed, right, uh, is a terrible translation. Uh, it's almost always translated that way. It is really understating it. Paul was really angry. 
Paul was infuriated. Paul was pissed off. Pardon my crassness. But I'm trying to emphasize how much Luke is saying here. Paul gets there and he looks around and there's like, there are idols everywhere. This is horrible. And he is deeply offended. Okay? And remember, Paul comes from a group of people where graven images were considered to be sinful. It's in the Ten Commandments, right? And those graven images, um, like even the coins with faces on them, kind of offended the Jews. Right? Like you wouldn't bring a Roman coin into the temple. Remember Jesus argues with the temple folks about it? Like, oh, well, because they would say, well, that's an idol. It's a graven image. So Paul is like put off by this. He is angry. Well, why would he be angry? And there's an important thing here and an important thing as it relates to us as believers. Now watch this. Paul is angry because what he sees is a low rent version of who God is. Right? God is the most amazing the most powerful, the creator of all, sent his son to die for our sins, the, the, the forgiver, the cre- you know, everything. He laid the foundations of the world. He hung the stars in the sky, all of it. And that God, they have the low rent version. And it's kind of offensive. And it's not kind of offensive, it's really offensive because he looks around and he sees a distortion of who God is in all of these idols and he sees them pursuing things, trying to fill themselves up, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, trying to fill themselves up, trying to meet this need, trying to find what they're looking for, trying to cover all their religious bases just to be sure, right? Um, but he sees this and he's offended by it, he's upset by it because they're, they're worshiping something that is a low rent, not God. And he's angry. Now, what Paul does with the anger is a huge deal. And I, I think that's one of the values of the distress thing. Because what Paul does is, he's there, he's not there for a mission, he's hanging out. And instead of just hanging out and waiting, he begins to preach. And he begins to go out and talk to people and have conversations and say, Hey guys, let me talk to you about this. Let's reason together. Let's see what's going on. He doesn't just sit in it. The other thing he doesn't do, and we've seen it happen to Paul over and over and over again up until this point, he would go to a city, he would preach the gospel, he would talk scriptures with people, he would have conversations, and people would get mad, and like the leaders of the Jewish folks would like get frustrated, and they'd say, all right, well, let's go to the marketplace and let's get the rabble, these guys who are basically unemployed and ready to jump into any mess or chaos that they can find. You all have known people like that, right? That if like you're going to be at a meeting and somebody's going to get loud, it's going to be that guy. Or if there's something to be, I know it's me, um, <laughs> thank you for pointing, uh, there are, like, these are people who are going to just look for the fun of a fight. And they would get these people and they'd run Paul out of town. And Paul would go to the next town and they'd follow him and they'd get the rabble in the next town to chase him off. This is not what Paul is doing and this is not what believers are to do. We will see, in fact, actually, I'm going to say it, turn the TV on and watch for five minutes Um, hop on Facebook, hop on uh, Twitter, hop on whatever, you know, read the news, and you will see horrible, offensive things right now, right? Things that defy God's intent for us, things that are broken, uh, things that do not, like, resemble his plan. And what Paul did in response to those things was he preached the gospel. What we sometimes want to do is light the torches, right? Man, there's nothing as much fun as lighting torches. Uh, you know, hey, oh my gosh, they should run that guy out of town. They should, 
you know, throw those guys in jail. Oh my gosh, did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? We gossip to get everybody else riled up and everything else. And this is not what we're called to do. Paul is offering us a good example. We speak the truth in love. We preach the gospel. This is what we have to offer. If we drive out wicked people, eventually the city will be empty. And we'll have to go too. Um, So the key idea here is, first off, in Athens, people are looking for gods of their own making as they rebel against the God who created us. Those gods are substandard imitations. They are low-rent versions. They are never going to be good enough. They will never meet that need. But that is what is happening. And Paul sees that, and he's heartbroken, and he's angry in response. Um, So we're going to go on. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now, this is Athens. You could go to the marketplace and talk to people. There are stories of philosophers who lived in the marketplace. And that's all they did. They hung out there. By the way, there's an interesting little side note. This is not a full-on rabbit trail, but just pointing over at that rabbit over there. Um, Athens is the first city in history where people had a lot of free time because they had so many slaves to do the work for them that they got to hang out and do nothing. And that's when philosophy came about. People think about meaning and direction and purpose and everything else when they got nothing better to do, right? And so, like, like that's why it came about. And people still did that. They went to the marketplace and they'd argue and they'd teach and they'd do all these other things. This was a thing that happened often. Um, And so Paul goes there, and instead of hanging out, he does something with his anger. And it is not chasing people off. It's not yelling at people online, which would have been really hard at the time. Um, It's not any of that stuff. It is he talked to people about the gospel. He said, guys, I know the truth. I see what you're chasing, and it's not the truth. He talked to the Jews. He said, hey, you believe in these things, and that's good, but let me tell you about their fulfillment. He, He brought purpose. He brought meaning. Um, it was a little like, I don't know, you ever get McDonald's fries where they forget to salt them? Ugh. They're not good until they got salt on them, right? And then somebody puts ketchup on them and ruins them further. Um, Paul is bringing the salt. He is bringing them meaning and purpose and direction as God intended. Um, But here is the trick. In many ways, this culture, these people, they resemble us. We have free time. Are you kidding? I am so busy, I can hardly see straight. If you hop up, like, with me, you can grab up your phone and look at your screen time. And tell me how many hours of screen time you've managed to log. I know how much my kids do, and I cut it back periodically because they do too much. Because they have way too much free time. Like, have a look at your Netflix list and see how many shows you've knocked out in the last month. I mean, we have time. We're not working, you know, well, actually, and I'm sure there are folks in the room that can attest, in the early days of Montana, in the early days of Big Sandy, you woke up before the rooster and you kicked him out of bed so he could get going, and you worked in the fields all day until it was sundown, and you probably ate dirt during that time and tumbleweeds and other stuff, and it was a hard life, and you worked all the time um, because you had to survive. We're very much past that point. Like, like we're the only culture in history where the poorest people in our culture are, are generally obese. Right? Like, nobody starves to death anymore unless they have, like, I mean, in our culture, nobody starves to death unless they have real issues that draw them into that place. Like, mental health kind of stuff. But in a lot of ways, they're like us. We have free time. We talk. We worship everything. We don't worship everything. Are you nuts? 
How many of y'all know folks who buy a new car every other year? Levied up to their eyeballs in debt because they are worshiping new paint. I stole that phrase from uh, one of the, uh, I think Wanger, uh, Josh Wanger. Um, we, we worship images. We worship our weight. How much time, like, and I'll tell you, I get depressed about this sometimes when I think about how much time I spend thinking about exercise and food and everything else compared to how much time I spend praying. Weird, isn't it? How much time I spend worrying about things that are not Christ. How rarely I bring, I mean, like our culture, we worship money. We worship appearance. We worship sex like crazy. We worship sex. It is ridiculous. We worship individuality. We worship gender right now. We worship this. We worship that is everywhere. We worship everything. And we are so much like these guys. It's, it's terrifying. We have idols throughout our lives. We have idols in every facet and every place. Um, Verse 18, this is where it starts to get really fun. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, uh, there's a lot in that little section. We're going to kind of touch on it. First off, our similarities in this sense. The Epicureans were pure materialists, right? That means they believed that you die, you're gone. Everything is the stuff that it is made of, these atoms, right? And they would, and I think that's actually where the word atom came from, if I'm not mistaken. These atoms make up everything. When you die, you just sort of become atoms again. That's it. There's nothing else. They believed in gods, but the gods were out there, and the gods just don't care what we're doing. They're sort of in that, like, nether area here. I don't know what they're doing, but they have nothing to do with us. They don't care about us. We just live our lives. We live for pleasure. We enjoy ourselves. By the way, Epicurean now is associated with food and seasoning and deliciousness because the Epicureans, they enjoyed life because there's nothing else. Anybody know folks like that? Anybody fall into that hole periodically? I'm going to enjoy my dinner. That is what matters. I look forward to when I go to Florida, because I'm mentally ill, Florida's horrible, Uh, when I get to go on vacation to somewhere nice and warm and beautiful that isn't Florida, Um, you know, Hawaii, thank you. Like, like we worship our stuff. Like, we, we get new things all the time because pleasure is it, and we don't think about the future because there's not really a whole lot of point. There might be gods out there, and the best you could do is probably figure out what those gods might want. You can't really know what it is. And just sort of be content and happy with the nothing you got. That's it. Anybody sort of hear this? Anybody know folks that fall into this? Anybody fall into this? The Stoics, who are a lot more interesting in my opinion, uh, the Stoics believed that logic or that this like basic reasoning governs the whole universe, right? Um, they were essentially just like the Epicureans because the Epicureans were, I am spiritual but not religious, right? I believe there are gods. I just don't deal with them because they don't care what's going on with me. They have their thing. I got my thing. Anyway, again, right? This is us. The Stoics, also spiritual but not religious, right? There are gods, and they affect our lives, but I don't care. 
And so I can say everything happens for a reason, and I can know it, but it doesn't matter if there's a reason, and it doesn't matter if I know the thing that made that reason happen. It doesn't matter. That's just this spiritual phrase I toss out, and then I figure out what's right to live by, I, what's right in my own eyes, basically, and I live morally, and I don't feel strong feelings about death or life or loss or possession or success or failure or betrayal or anything. I don't feel really strongly about that, the best I can do is feel nothing and try to do the best I can with what I've got. They are spiritual because they believe in the gods and the gods oversaw and everything else, but they're not religious because they don't deal with the gods. They ignored them. Um, again, this is us. Logic dictates everything. By the way, the word for logic, and it was like all over the place in the ancient like Stoic philosophy, was logos. And uh, they believed that the Logos determined everything. And that should sound familiar because John 1 tells us in the beginning there was God and the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word in Greek is Logos. Because when John writes his letter, he's writing it to Jewish people living amongst Greek folks, and he's saying, guys, Jesus is the Thing, this truth, this word, this, this like everything that holds the universe together, just like these Stoics believe, except this is the truth. And he like sort of jumped on this like structure to explain it. And it's actually kind of neat. And it's all over the New Testament. The Stoics kind of had it going on a lot better than the Epicureans did. Uh, and in fact, actually, this, both schools of philosophy have had a resurgence because people are looking for meaning in their lives. Um, finally, they accused Paul of being a babbler. And they did this because they, don't under, they didn't understand what he was saying. They didn't understand the gospel. They didn't understand anything to it. They figured uh, the, the word babbler basically means seed talker. And it sort of gets the image of a bird pecking at seeds. And the idea was he is like an idiot who can't think his way out of a paper bag. And he grabs little scraps of thought everywhere. This is me, by the way. Uh, little scraps of thought everywhere, and he sticks them together, and it's all nonsense. He's just chasing after the latest trend or what's exciting at the moment. That is who Paul is. And they're like, resurrection? That's nonsense. By the way, the Greeks would have been offended by the idea of resurrection. Um, the most prominent Greek philosopher ever, more or less, like, well, there's a line of them, Socrates, who never wrote anything, Plato that wrote stuff, and his student Aristotle. They believe that the flesh and the world around us is a flawed version of an ideal. And so the resurrection coming back to life would have been offensive. And so they're hearing all this stuff that Paul's saying, and they're like, this is nonsense. Doesn't he understand thinking? Doesn't he understand philosophy? Doesn't he understand these ideas? Like, this guy is out in left field. By the way, if you spend any amount of time talking scripture with folks or talking about like morality or talking about Christ, what people will say to you oftentimes is, don't you understand how the world works? Don't you understand that that's outdated? One of my favorites right now is, hey, you're opposed to this, but Christians were like, like supported slavery once upon a time. How is this any different? And that's, of course, ignoring the fact that all over the world, basically, Christians have driven slavery out of existence. Like it was the church that ended slavery all over Europe. And like in the United States, oh my gosh, we had slaves and we had people who like, like preached that slavery was biblical and we had a lot more people that preached it wasn't and people who shed their blood making it end. In England, you got guys like Wilbur, Wilbur Force who ended slavery using the uh, parliament and all this. Like, like the church has brought about righteousness all over history, but like folks don't understand history very well. And so they'll look at those things and say, oh, Christians are evil. The, this, that, and the other. Oh, you can't argue against this. This is a rabbit trail, by the way. 
Um, and so I'm going to end that. Like, you will get this response from people if you talk about Christ. There is only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus who died for your sins. One way? How closed-minded can you be? Right? Sins? Are you judging me? Only God can judge me, as the great philosopher once said. That is true, and you should be terrified of it. Um, they didn't understand what Paul is saying, and he, they called him basically a babbler. You're chasing after scraps of information. By the way, to this, I'm going to toss out 1 Corinthians 1, 20 uh, to 21. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since... Or for in the wisdom, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Corinth, remember, is the city of the day, and it is actually not that far away from Athens. Uh, and like there would have been philosophers there too. And Paul is saying, listen, these guys who think they're so wise. And they look at our teaching and they say it is foolishness. God is saving us by foolishness to them. God is saving us by what they don't understand. And that is the truth of the gospel all over the place. What the world thinks is true and right and good is nonsense. And the foolishness of a God who came to this world, carried our sins on our behalf and died for us is the truth that saves us. But nobody likes to think about a God who would be killed. I want my God to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. Not really. Right? But I want a God who's going to kick butt in my name, right? Or on my behalf. Sometimes in my name. It'd be nice if he'd answer my beck and call once in a while. Um, but that's the way of the world. That's the heart of the lost. We want things to operate our way. And ultimately, Christ is foolishness to that. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Aragapus. Aragapus. I'm sorry. I cannot do Greek words. Um, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Now, uh, the Arapagus, uh, basically it's Mars Hill. There are a couple of churches that have been named after that. And the assumption has historically been that they dragged Paul up onto this hill to this courtroom, and they said, let's have a conversation. Probably not accurate. Probably what happened, by this point in history, the Arapagus was being held in the corner of the market, and so they probably just dragged him over to the Arapagus, and then they held a hearing, like a court trial, which is a little insane if you think about it, but they weren't trying him. They're like, throw your ideas out there, and we'll listen, and it'll be exciting because we can learn stuff. This is something new. Help us understand. And what's kind of cool about that is the Athenians were searching. They were searching for new ideas and exciting direction and different things like neat arguments. Probably the memes of the day would be very popular amongst these folks. They wanted to hear what he had to say, and so they had a formal hearing where he spoke. And next week we'll talk about the speech because we don't have enough time to do that this week. Um, So the Athenians were interested and willing to learn. They were searching. Now, the last verse we have here is an aside, and it's an aside from... Luke, oh my gosh, stinking slides, there, keep bumping me back, I lost. oh there it is, alright, nope, too far, alright, uh, ah. nothing's going to cooperate with me today, 
Are you bumping my slides while I'm trying to? There it is. Um, all right. So all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Now, Luke includes this little aside, which is accurate of Athens at the time. Um, and it is kind of interesting because uh, that's basically what they just accused Paul of doing, right? They're like, Paul, you're a babbler. The stuff you're saying is nonsense. Nobody believes that. It's ridiculous. Why would you say this? This is dumb. Um, you're clearly all over the place, and you're just scrapping together ideas. But that's basically who they were. All they did was sit around and have conversations about ideas that didn't materialize into anything. I On Twitter, I read uh, uh, a bunch of, I follow a bunch of philosophers, and I read like their arguments about different schools of philosophy. And I think it's interesting. And I also think it's interesting that it is a whole energy like invested like like arena in the world where nobody does a darn thing with it it doesn't affect how they live doesn't affect what they you know do how anything like nothing it's nothing it's just esoteric nonsense out in the middle of nowhere nobody it, it doesn't mean anything and that's what this culture was and to some degree that's us we argue about politics and we argue about what this freedom is or that freedom is and we argue about like like things that just don't matter in the extreme versions of it like we have folks who you know come up with ideas like well you you uh, my brother got in trouble at work years ago he held the door for a lady and he got reported to hr because it was an offensive, aggressive maneuver. That's nonsense, right? It just is. And in fact, actually, I, I you know, it's a self-destructive form of nonsense. Um, we talk about nonsense. We listen to nonsense. We argue about nonsense. And sometimes all of that nonsense is what's happening around us. We argue about our neighbors. We argue about the school board. We argue about the city hall. We argue about garbage ordinances. We argue about... It doesn't matter. None of it will matter in 10 years. And sure as heck, none of it will matter when we stand before God. But oftentimes we chase these things because they seem like the most important thing. And there is hypocrisy in their accusation because of that. Because they argue about nothing. And they accuse Paul of doing the same. Um, so what are our, that's my text here. What does it matter? Like, what's up with all these ideas? Like, what's the tie together here? First off, nothing changes. Everybody got it? The same nonsense they were doing thousands of years ago is the nonsense we do today. There it is, right? The schools of philosophy haven't changed that much. Materialists, like scientific materialism, is a very popular point of view. They've been arguing about it for, I don't know, 80, 100 years now. It's the Epicureans, period. Stoics, man, like you can buy uh, the works of Marcus Aurelius, which is funny because it's not very good. Well, anyway, um, rabbit trail. Uh, because it has become a Silicon Valley employee thing to look for meaning in life and to start reading things like Marcus Aurelius. This, and, and I like Marcus, but his work is kind of shallow. But it's easy, and so people read it because they're like, well, this will give me meaning and purpose. Nothing's changed. We worship idols left and right. We hang them up in our house. We stare at them on our phones. We stick them in our pocket every day, everywhere we go. We worship our calendars and our clocks and our success and our money and our I'm right, you're wrong and all kinds of other nonsense. We worship ourselves like nothing has changed. And why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because our chasing of idols means that the gospel is still relevant. Uh, second big principle I want to present, and some people would disagree with me on this, 
Um, Kierkegaard talks about this idea of angst. Angst is when you are separated from God, when you have distance between you and your creator. Um, Blaise Pascal said that in every man there is a God-shaped space, like in our, like a hole in our souls. Um, and that the more that we pursue things to fill it up, the emptier it gets. And most of us have done this. I will be happy if I have the perfect wife and the perfect kids, or if I have the best, you know, farm or the newest equipment, or if I'm the best athlete or whatever. We do this stuff. We chase after things and dump those things in this hole in ourselves, and the hole gets emptier. Because the only thing that will ever fill that hole is Christ. Is, is God himself. He is designed to be a part of our lives. And we, like, suffer because he's not there or when he's not there or when we wander off from him. The only real hope, meaning, direction, and completeness we have in life is in Christ. Everything else is a substitution. And that's what these people are doing. They're filling their heads with ideas because it gets them excited for a minute and then it goes away and they got to find something else. That's like... All of us are essentially spiritual addicts until we come into Christ. I need meaning. It'll be in my new boyfriend. Right? I need, not my, I don't have a boyfriend. Um, I need meaning. It's all about my family until my family doesn't fulfill me. It's all about being, you know, a stoic or being smart or being in the right political party or, or whatever. But it's all nonsense. It'll always leave us empty. And like, a, like an addict, like, you know, you can drink to try to fill that hole inside you. But the hole is emptier when you're done, and you have to drink even more next time. And you might not notice it for a minute, but it will always be empty again. Finally, believers should stand out as unique to the world. We bear fruit, and we bring a message that is unique. And that's what we see in Paul. Paul brings a unique message, and he shares it, and he talks about it. Paul lives different. That is what we as the church bring to the world. These are the concepts I want to draw out of this little bit of text. I could do five or six sermons on this. I really wanted to, but I decided not to because I didn't think anybody would put up with it. First off, like how do we apply this? So what do I do with all this? It sounds like mindless philosophy that doesn't apply to my daily life. Um, the fruit that we bear as a result of our salvation should make us stand out. Um, and honestly, I think it does in this community. There are two or three people in this town that I think of as like some of the best people I've ever met. And in every case, it's because of Christ in them, right? Like we as believers should, we should be obvious. We should love people to the point of ridiculous, not because we're ostentatious or put it out there, but just because that's who we are. There are people I've met in this town, in this church, in this area that like, if you have a problem, they're not going to think twice. They're just going to try and fix it. They'll, you know, do things like put money in your account at the grocery store without you asking, like, secretly. Those people are, like, what I'm talking about. The people who will show up and mow your lawn or clean all of the weeds out of your rocks without telling anyone, right? And you just wake up in the morning, you're like, holy mess, somebody mowed my lawn. Somebody, like, weeded my rocks. That's at the parsonage. Like, that is awesome. Somebody did this, and I don't know who they are. When I was pastoring a church in... um Edwardsburg, Michigan, I had a guy who cleaned my driveway for like three years. No idea who it was. Actually, I think I caught them eventually. Uh, but I would get up earlier and earlier, and he'd just plow earlier and earlier. 
Um, and he watched for me. And if I, I came running out to see who it was, and he tore out of there, and I didn't get to see him. It took me forever to figure out who it was because he wanted to serve me and love me silently. This is how we should stand out, guys. Um, second, we must know why we believe and what we believe. Like, is that, so we got to grow in it. we got to bear fruit. we got to be the salt and light for the world. But also we have to know why we believe what we believe so we can talk about it. Well, I believe in Jesus. Well, why? I have hope in Christ. Why? And finally, we need to be Jesus to the lost. Like, there are lost people in our world. There are in our, in our, on our street, in the farm next to us, sometimes in our own house, and we have to look like Christ to them. Historically, the church has not done this that great. We look at lost people, and we want to chase them out of town by getting the rabble excited, right? And in reality, we're called to love and serve, and to be humble, and to show Christ to people. And that's hard, because the rabble is so much easier. But how we respond will determine everything about how they respond. I, uh, I love this painting. I've seen it in a million places. I put it up here because it's, it's a painting of Paul in this marketplace preaching and people sitting down and listening to him. And Paul, if he found an opportunity, would share the gospel with people. That's weird in our culture because our culture, everybody has heard Jesus and we've heard it in the worst possible ways, right? And sometimes for us, it needs to be a little more like how Paul kind of approaches it. What do you think about this Jesus person? Like, yeah, a lot of people talk about church and it seems like they, you know, there's a lot of opinions. What do you think? Is this nonsense? Is this this? Is that? It's uncomfortable to say. But that's more what we have to do nowadays. Or like we have to be Jesus until people ask like, hey, why, why are you like this? Anybody ever have you ask, ask you that? Why are you like this? Because Christ is in me. Why are you being so nice to me? Because I love you because Jesus loves you. Or whatever. I mean, people are probably better at that than I am. Um, but not just... A well wish. Now, hear me out. And I, I picked this picture of Paul. Here's the other reason I picked it. Was because the rubber's got to hit the road. We have to actually do these things. It's good to hear it. It's good to show up. It's good to learn. It's good to worship. But ultimately, if it never hits the road, then it's just dead knowledge in our heads. Right? If it doesn't turn into fruit. I, I talked to someone uh, years ago who seeded one of his fields and nothing came up. Just nothing big dead field never figured out why never anything like it was just a big dead field you know all right it can't be that it's got to be something more well what does that mean i'll tell you it means delivering meals to people from the the medical center right that's what it means it means encouraging people who are struggling i have uh in the back on the table uh, I don't know if y'all are aware, there's a lot of stress amongst the teachers right now in the administration at the school, right? Uh, because there was a, a student that, 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 that died, and um, there's a lot of, like, fluctuation, and there's some other tensions going on that are none of my business, so I'm not going to get into it. But I'm aware there are a lot of teachers that are discouraged, and I'm willing to bet, raise your hand if there's a teacher in the school right now that you have had interaction with or has interacted with one of your kids and you've thought, I cannot believe how good that person is. Um, 
we can't, I'm not going to fight a political battle or anything like that. But what I will do is I'll write a note and say, hey, I appreciate what you do. I appreciate that you care for my kids. I appreciate that you show up even though there's not a lot of money in it. And on your way out, I would encourage you, grab a couple of cards, sit down and write a thank you note. I'll deliver them. Specific. You know, hey, so-and-so, Mr. Taylor, I was at the school the day after the students found out about the death, and, and I, I was there to talk to people and all that, and I was kind of hanging around in the hallway, and I watched a handful of kids come in who had not come to school that day because they were really upset, and they went into Mr. Taylor's office, our classroom, and they sat and they talked to him. That's amazing. That's, oh my gosh, anybody who invests in kids like that, like, that's a way to encourage our teachers. That's a way to be the, you know, the hands and the voice of Christ. Um, just sitting down and writing a specific, hey, thank you for working with my child. I appreciate that you were patient. I appreciate that you did this. I appreciate that you did that. It meant a lot to me. It meant a lot to my kids. There's a stack of cards out there. But I'm going to tell you, every opportunity is there. Like, they're all over the place. I had a guy I was fighting with, and I said, well, i got to learn to be Jesus to this guy. And I started praying about it. And, like, the more I prayed about it, the more opportunities turned up. It was amazing. I worked on his car for him, and I did a bunch of other stuff. Like, I found ways to be Jesus to him. And it was, it was night and day. It changed the world between us. And it created space to talk about Jesus, all this stuff. Like, it was amazing. But, like, we have to do this stuff in our everyday lives. We have to be salt. We have to be light. You know, Jesus says in that, that text, right, like, uh, a city on a hill can't be hidden, but it seems like the church sometimes tries. Right? Let's get the tarps over it. Blackout curtains. Nobody can know I follow Jesus. It's not who we're called to be, folks. And there's a lot of that now. I know, I, I surveyed people earlier this year, or last year. Uh, I went around to people who don't go to church anywhere, and I asked them, people I thought would tell me mean things. And I said, what do people say when they talk about our church? And one of the things that stood out to me was they talked about individuals. The Eccles are some of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. This is what we're called to be. Salt on French fries. Light in a dark world. The voice of Jesus to people who are searching for something more. Trying to find it in food or at the bar. So my challenge for you today, my encouragement is to go out into the marketplace, see the idols, and love the people who are being enslaved by them. Be Christ to those folks. Share the gospel you know, in how you live and how you speak and in what you say. Be Christ to the world. We're going to close in prayer, and I will let you go. Uh, a little shorter than normal. Hooray, but not short. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us. I pray that uh, you would speak to the, the hearts of the folks in the room today. I pray that you would plant the seeds of your gospel, that that fruit would be born in their day-to-day lives, that that would be a blessing to the folks they encounter, that, that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control would be evident in their interactions, in their business, in their, in their trips to the grocery store, in their conversations over the fence with the neighbor. I pray that these things would be who we are, that we would bear fruit, and that that fruit would be distributed to a lost world, that they would be filled with your spirit and not see us as babblers or seed speakers, 
but as folks who are bringing living water to folks who are dying of thirst. In Christ's name, amen. I need you to wait a little bit.